A number of years back, a decade or so now, I think, they rerouted some of the major roads around Boston. The project sort of got a lot of national attention because it went on very long and the cost overruns were very high. It was a very ambitious project. It took years and it was known to the locals in the Boston area as the Big Dig. And to do it, when they, in the planning stages, to do the project, they had to conceive a whole system of temporary roads. A whole system that itself had to be rigorously thought through. And so the idea here is that any really big new project, something radically new, usually does require a strategy to do something fairly complicated in the interim, something temporary until the time is right where you can cut over to the new road systems. Now, eventually, the new project is ready. The interim system is obsolete, right? And thus, it's replaced. Something like that is in view in our text this morning from Hebrews 10, which was the New Testament lesson. From the very beginning, God planned to usher in the new covenant in Christ. He planned for the incarnation. But our need, our need, his wisdom, his patience, dictated this rather long and complex interim arrangement that we call the Old Testament. And sometimes it can seem incredibly long. It's the fatter part of your Bible, is it not? And here we have to recall that neither, even though we may take this for granted, neither Israel nor the world could have made any sense at all out of this bewildering mystery of Jesus. Without this long tutorial, Israel and the world did not have the tools. They did not have the vocabulary. They did not have the dispositions. There's a wonderful statement about this from the Scottish uh, theologian T.F. Torrance. He speaks of the need for this extended tutorial. I want to cite him at some length. He says this, By elaborate ritual and carefully framed laws, by rivers of blood from millions of animal sacrifices, by the broken hearts of the psalmists and the profoundest agony of the prophets. God taught the Jews through hundreds and hundreds of years until the truth was imprinted on their conscience and burned into their soul and the meaning was set forth of holiness and righteousness of sin and uncleanness, of love and of mercy and of grace, of faithfulness and forgiveness, of justification and reconciliation and atonement and salvation, the meaning of the kingdom of God, of judgment, of death, and at last of resurrection, and the thought of the Messiah, the suffering servant, yet prophet, priest, and king. And then, he continues, at long last, in the fullness of time, when the time was pregnant, 
when God had prepared in the heart and soul of Israel a womb for the birth of Jesus, a cradle for the babe of Bethlehem, then the Savior of the world was born, the very Son of God, right in the midst of the Old Testament faith. Thus far, T.F. Torrance. Or in my simplification of all that, Jesus cannot be Scandinavian. He, with respect to his humanity, he must come out of the long furnace of Israel's history. So our text is this New Testament lesson from Hebrews 10. It is, again, a traditional text for the fourth Sunday of Advent. And the reason for this is that it speaks of the Incarnation. It talks of this birth of Jesus in the heart of Israel. Not only that, the text shows us the end. The end of the long tutorial. The end of the elaborate alternate system of roads. The elaborate system of sacrifices which Jesus brings to fulfillment. And so we'll make three points here. They're on the back inside page of your bulletin. The body assumed, the body obedient, and the body offered. So first, the body assumed. This is Hebrews 10, verse 5. And here the text begins with a therefore. That is, in view of the weakness of the law and its sacrifices, the fact that the long tutorial has sacrifices which are continually repeated, And the fact that in the long tutorial, nothing final and definitive has been done to cleanse us of our sin. You have to keep doing stuff over and over and over and over and over again. Every day of atonement, every morning and evening sacrifice is just a reminder that you're a sinner who needs needs atonement. It's like taking your car back to the mechanic over and over and over and over again. It means the mechanic has not decisively fixed your car. Or going to the doctor, or whatever it might be. Therefore, then, the text begins, when Christ comes into the world, he says, and then the author cites Psalm 40 at length. Now, notice what he's doing. He places the words of Psalm 40 on the lips of Christ when he came into the world which is a reference to his incarnation. Which is why we have here a Christmas text. Again, it's surprising where the church has found Christmas texts. Hebrews 10, starting at verse 5, is a Christmas text. Not only that, we have something incredibly rare and unique here. We have Christ talking about himself in the event of the incarnation. That's hard to find. And so the church has always recognized the uniqueness to this text, a kind of glimpse behind the scenes that we don't get. We should picture here in this text, if you will, the pre-existent Christ, right? The eternal Son of God, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, of one substance with the Father. We should picture that one uttering these very words as he descends to become man in the womb of the virgin. 
That's what this text is about. The 4th century uh, church father, Athanasius, said, As the word who is immortal and the father's son, it was not possible for him to die. Not possible for him to die. And this is the reason, Athanasius says, that he assumed a body capable of dying. You know, as God, Jesus does not emerge from the history of Israel. He comes straight down from heaven. But as man, he emerges out of this long, elaborate tutorial. And what he says from Psalm 40 is this. Again, this is Christ himself speaking of his own incarnation. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. You've not been pleased with them. But a body, a body, the incarnate, the enfleshed body of the Son of God, you, Father, have prepared for me. It's remarkable. Like the Father, to end all sacrifices, is a craftsman. Forming, preparing a body for his son in the womb of Mary. This is, of course, for the Greeks' foolishness. For the embodied material world is always tainted for the Greeks. And for the Jews, it's a stumbling block. For the Messiah can't be God. So this taking up of a body, what we are celebrating at Christmas taking up here a complete human existence. Body here stands for a full humanity. It includes a human mind, a human soul, a human will. This is, this is the luminous mystery of Christmas. This is the story of the Bible. The story in Israel, you know, the elaborate preparation story, that could be summarized as the word on the road to becoming flesh. That's what your Old Testament is, the word on the road to becoming flesh. The rest of the Bible is the word enfleshed. So this is what we're up against, God becoming man. And this mystery is rooted in, it recedes back into the infinite depths of God's love. And it reveals, not only is it rooted in that love, it shows us that love. It reveals the love of God. Now, In the mind of the writer of the book of Hebrews, this indicates for us the complete solidarity, right? the sympathy of Christ for you in your real, concrete, day-to-day embodied existence. It's a beautiful thing. God now has a body forever. There's a man seated at the right hand of the Father. And when John sees him, he sees a lamb standing as if slain. He bears the wounds of his passion. Now, this is all commonplace, I think, for the Christian tradition and the Christian church. But it should not be lost on us. It is the central, illuminating, radiant thing. Could anything, could any act dignify matter and material existence more than this act. Chesterton, I think it was, who famously said that the incarnation teaches us that matter matters. 
There could not be a higher affirmation of the intrinsic goodness of the created order than this. And nothing could dignify the human person more than this. For this is the act of God restoring the image of his creatures. Could any act confer greater dignity and glory on motherhood than this act? You know, it is impossible to understand. I just heard a lecture the other day by a Yale law professor who has, I wouldn't say become a Christian, but he's bridged the gap between his prior paganism and the Christian faith, and he has a position somewhere in between now. But he made clear what is widely known among philosophers, I think, that it is impossible to understand the West's focus on the infinite dignity and value of every human being without this event. It's something we tend to take for granted. But the idea of human rights and human dignity and human intrinsic worth is just floating in the air outside of this event. So when this one, when God himself becomes a man, Again, it's very important for us to remind ourselves who is acting here. Right? The inexhaustible God is acting. The unfathomable second person of the Holy Trinity. When he becomes a man, he stands with you. To put it as simply as we can, he stands with us creatures in all of our weak and frail and broken and guilty existence. In our exposed human existence in our fleeting and vaporizing human existence. God takes that up, and he crosses this infinite gulf. And he takes up your plight from inside your condition. Other religions may have a God who sends you help from outside. Christianity has a God who gets underneath the human condition, takes your plight up from within it, The very act, then, of assuming this body, this body which was prepared for him by the Father, in the womb of Mary, is itself a display of who God is. It's a display of the exquisite lowliness of God, the humility of God. And it is the grand beginning, right, of the Son's agonizing obedience for us. I love this saying of Calvin where he says, from the moment he took the form of a servant, he began to pay the price of our liberation. This is the son's obedience. You know, let me say this. A God who makes this kind of commitment who goes to these lengths is not going to abandon you. I will come back to this. I love the hymn we sang right before the sermon. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, became as poor. Right? The, The one who is doing this is the God who is beyond all praising. And all for love's sake, he becomes one of us. Right? This 
is what Christ coming into the world and having a body prepared for him means. This is the word become flesh. What does he do in this body? And that brings me to the second point. The body obedient. Verse 6, Christ continues speaking the words of Psalm 40. You know, as an aside, one of the things this sermon should do for you is make you very interested in Psalm 40. Because Jesus says it to his father as he descends into the womb of his mother. So, he continues speaking from Psalm 40. He says, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. God takes no pleasure. The people of Boston took no pleasure in that interim road system. Believe me. God takes no pleasure in this long, complicated, elaborate tutorial. Even though God ordained them. Right? And Psalm 40 is not the only place this idea occurs. Right? The prophets engage in this long and sustained critique of the sacrifices when they're divorced from obedience. You get this all throughout the, the, the prophets. Amos 5, I hate and I reject your festivals. Right? Isaiah 1, take your sacrifices away from me. To obey is better than sacrifice, 1 Samuel. God desires mercy and not sacrifice, Hosea. You have this repeated emphasis. So here is the problem. The sacrifices exist precisely because Israel can't obey. They need a substitute. We need a substitute. We're sinners. And yet the prophets say, without obedience, the sacrifices are a sham. Well, that creates a kind of quandary. Right? Why do the prophets say this? They recognize that the sacrificial system itself demands obedience. When you put that animal up on the altar, it's a vivid picture of the greatest commandment, that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. That your life is to be cut, consecrated, offered, consumed in the flame of love, ascending like a a fragrant aroma up to God. The worshiper is to be a whole grain offering, a pure living sacrifice. What happens to the animal is to happen in the life of the worshiper. Now the sacrificial system looks a little different. And this is part of what God was teaching Israel by what Torrance called rivers of blood and millions of animal sacrifices. And so what happens in your, in your Old Testament story is this long-running crisis, if you will, between the prophets and the lax priests who tended to view the, the, uh, the Old Testament sacrificial system as a, as a kind of magic, divorced from obedience. And it's into that crisis, it's into that crisis, that Christ speaking the words of Psalm 40 steps, it's important to see this. This is, what, this is why Jesus cites Psalm 40 when he comes. Because we have in him, and this is at long last, right? A fully obedient Israelite who is a fragrant offering and thus can be the living sacrifice we need. Right? We have one unlike bulls and goats who can offer the obedience that the sacrificial system itself demands. 
One commentator puts it this way, the author's contrast is between the involuntary sacrifice of animals and a sacrifice into which obedience enters. The sacrifice of a rational and spiritual being, which is not passive in death, but in dying makes the will of God its own. Right? Animals cannot offer rational obedience. And the whole in-room system then, the whole sacrificial system is set aside by what happens in the body of Jesus. Verse 7, Behold, I have come, meaning I've come into the world, to do your will, O God. Right? And this will sets aside, the text says, the whole Old Testament system because it's the will of God written in the scroll of the book. It's the whole obedience of Christ. From Christmas to the cross, that is the end of the sacrificial system. And so in that body, in a body just like your body with a human mind and a human soul and a human will, right, we have what our Reformed catechisms call Perfect, personal, exact, and entire obedience. Perfect, personal, exact, and entire obedience. This is the first time, after thousands of years, that we have an obedience which is better than mere sacrifice and at the same time is a substitutionary sacrifice. This is the pure offering that we need. Jesus' obedience was his sheer joy and delight, right? Because he's rooted in his very being in the everlasting love of God. He does finally what we are supposed to do in these bodies. And when you look at his agonizing obedience in the body for your sake, you should think of Satan and the forces of sin and all the forces of hell trying to snap the bond that exists between him and the Father. But because of this obedience, perfect, personal, entire, and exact, offered in love, the bond holds. The bond holds. And the author now comments on Christ's use of Psalm 40. It's remarkable what is happening in Hebrews 10. The author says, this is what Jesus says when he becomes man. Now I'm going to comment on what he says. And he says, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then he says, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first, the Levitical sacrifices, in order to establish the obedience to the will of God fleshed out in the body of Jesus. The point is clear. You had an elaborate system of sacrifices. Now you have an obedient sacrifice. So the body assumed is the living, sacrificial, holy, obedient body of Jesus. And finally, the body is offered. This is our third point. You can see this in verse 10. And by that will, by that will, we have been sanctified or made holy or purified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all, once for all. Notice, it's past tense. We have been sanctified. Right? Just as you've been legally justified, 
So you have been purified. You have been washed once for all time. This is an amazing statement. It's a permanent cleansing which forever avails before God's face for you. Right after this text in verse 14, the writer puts it this way. For by a single offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So that we are definitively, decisively, eternally cleansed, purified forever. This is what assuming the body does. And yet we're also being sanctified. But now we can see, because we've moved away from the elaborate road system to the obedient body, right, we can see the crucial difference with respect to Old Testament saints. And I think this is important for your conscience, for your soul's formation, for your piety and love of God. When we sin and we come for cleansing, we do so as children who've already been washed. Right? We've all, you've already been perfected forever. And thus your sins are always dealt with in a fatherly way, not in a judicial manner. And certainly not by the offering of any new sacrifices. When we need forgiveness, we know it's been fully provided. Right? And that we've already been purified. So what are we doing when we come to the Lord for forgiveness? We're repairing to this one offering to restore our communion with the Father. And notice that we do this. We do this by direct appeal in his very presence. We don't have to stand outside and watch a priest do it for us from a distance. And so whenever God forgives our specific sins, he does so on the basis of this prior complete forgiveness. He's applying to you the one offering of the body of Jesus, which has perfected you forever. That offering restores the light, restores the light of God's fatherly countenance on you. Now, this is, I would suggest, precisely the way you forgive your own children. They are not on probation. Your children are not on probation, and neither are you. They're already embraced in your love. They're standing in your family, and as your beloved children, should always be secure. And so it is with God. In the new covenant, ongoing forgiveness between you and the Lord is a family affair. Our Father has already sanctified us forever. He has provided even when we were his enemies total cleansing. And there's no offering that can be brought here. So this is a text that reminds us that God delights as Father to forgive us our sins. He is never more God and never more holy and never more Father than when he is pardoning his children. Right? The the Holy Trinity in the person of the Son did not traverse this distance, right? And undertake this self-emptying and embrace this humiliation so that he might begin to judge you on your performance. 
so that he might say, you know, I've forgiven them, but they're really doing a lousy job responding to it. Right, we should try and grasp the glory of this from one more angle. We could call verse 10 in our text, I think I mentioned this in Sunday school a while back, we could call it a pre-assurance of pardon, verse 10. The text that says you've been sanctified forever. Right, before any sin is committed, before any repentance is rendered, before anyone speaks any assuring gospel words, you are already eternally, once for all, purified. It's a permanent pre-assurance of pardon. That's the context you live in, that you obey in, that you repent in, that you confess sin in. Right? What, what better news can there be than that? Right? This is the sheer joy at the heart of Christmas. This is why a body was assumed, and why a body was obeyed in, and why a body was offered. So I want you to listen. I want you to hear this text saying these words to you. Pick up your bed and walk. Rise and anoint your face. Your warfare has ended. Your iniquity is pardoned. You know, and it's precisely because this body was was assumed and obeyed in and offered that all other sacrifices are set aside, including the sacrifices of our own devising that we cut to make deals with God or to somehow try to earn his love or his favor. This God, beloved, is invested. He's committed. He has skin in the game. He has body and blood and legs and arms and neck and back and a sacred wounded head in the game for you. He doesn't need your conjured offerings and sacrifices. And he is not, he does not find daunting the fact that we are who we are. Right? That we've got difficulties. We have difficulties in ourselves and in our relationships and in our jobs and in our homes and in our children. He substituted for you. He substituted for you. When you substitute for someone, you do, you do not then say, um, I think now your performance is a little substandard. He substituted. He offered the offering that we owed. And thus there's nothing we can offer. And it's precisely because there's nothing we can offer that we live in the preassurance of pardon. That we are summoned to freely offer everything. That same Scottish theologian, uh, T.F. Torrance, who I cited at the beginning, said, this is the logic of grace. The logic of grace is not most things are from God and a little bit's from man, or some is from God and some is from man, or all is for God and nothing is from man. Even that is not the logic of grace. The logic of grace is everything is from God freely. Therefore, everything is freely given back by man. And we see it precisely here. There's nothing we can offer. And so we're summoned to freely offer all. In other words, we are summoned by these words from the Apostle Paul. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies 
as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Praise be to God for the body assumed, the body obeyed in, the body offered. It's the dawn of indestructible joy. It's the reason why Christmas is merry. (laughs) Amen.